Hello and welcome to episode 21, the first of season 3 here on Crew Shaken, a Warhammer 40,000 tabletop wargaming podcast recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States of America. I'm your host, Tim, and joining me, as always, are my co-hosts, Lavelle and Carlo. Good evening, gentlemen. Oh, man, do we need to set up the order for Season 3 now? Okay, good evening. I'm Carlo. I'm Lavelle. (laughs) I just said that. (laughs) I just said it's Lavelle and Carlo. (laughs) Here we are, the first episode of 2019, the first episode of Season 3 of Crew Shaken. We are 21 episodes in. Pretty excited to be at this milestone of Season 3, starting off 2019 with a bang. Um, This season, this year, we have some new segments. We're going to try to stay more consistent with our segment layout. We have some new segments coming your way. We're going to have some guests coming your way and uh, some more fun uh, giveaways, etc. and so on. So uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope you enjoy Season 3. As always, let's start our podcast here, Episode 21. January 2019 hobby progress despite the holidays I think we all got a little bit of hobby hobbying done we got some games in Carlo why don't we start with you what's your hobby progress been since we last spoke right before the holiday break hmm. well uh, I finished paying what was that secret project we were talking about uh, that you and I were working on for with some other uh, friends of ours for Joe Capina who's a guy that runs all of our 40k events here and he runs a bunch of stuff at nova and you've heard his name a million times on this podcast already and we're uh we painted up a knight valent that uh sasha kind of you know donated that he won from a tournament and we each painted a couple pieces and threw it all together and it looked really awesome and we gave it to him on on the day of the apoc and he played with it and it came in turn two and died turn two (laughs) (laughs) as as is the fate of any new model you know (laughs) But uh, it was good because I was on the other team. So, you know. <laughs> how did you, how'd you like uh, painting that? Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I had the uh, lower, one of the lower arm sections, uh, one of the lower leg sections, rather, a of the, of the armor, just the armor. Somebody else had painted the interior structure. Um, and I had a knee pad, and I think I had the two missiles on top of the carapace. Um, but I enjoyed it because we were not in – we didn't discuss what everyone else was doing with the model beforehand, which was kind of cool. So it could have been a real hodgepodge of colors and looks and, and styles and techniques and whatnot. But I saw I, – you know, unfortunately, I missed uh, APOC weekend this year. But I did see some photographs of it on Facebook, and it actually looks pretty darn cohesive. Was it that way when you saw it in person too? Did it look like it was meant to be together? Yeah, it looks really awesome. Um I know, like, I did the other leg, and I, I saw your piece, so I tried to do something, like, close to it, but I didn't copy your colors. Like, I, I went with, uh, I think you did green and blue, right? And then you did, everybody was really um, kind of, like, blown away by the Kingsbreaker symbol you put on the leg. So, uh, you know, everybody was surprised to see that, and, you know, it worked really well, because that's Joe's, like, home chapter, you know? So, I ended up doing... That piece, the leg piece, and I think I did uh, the ch- the chest. I did the chest and the the uh, crotch area and the uh, the head and the face. So, and that was they, they all came out pretty good. I was uh, happy with myself. 
But uh, Carlo, before you go on with your hobby progress, can you kind of tell our listeners how you put this? How did you organize this project? How did it work? How were the logistics of getting pieces around? Because it's actually a nice thing to do for somebody that's important to any kind of gaming community. So our listeners, you know, might want to know. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an easy thing to put put together. Um, so originally, like we had just finished Nova last year, and Joe had spent the whole weekend yelling at the top of his lungs. And uh, my original idea was like all of us to throw in uh, twenty bucks or something and pick up like a, a kind of like a PA system for him. But uh, we, you know, we got to talking, and Colin was like, "Oh, I think he already has one. He just doesn't use it." And we we're like, "Okay, let's not buy him a second one." And uh, Alex kind of threw in the idea of painting something for him. So uh, I, luckily, I have a I'm a member at Red Caps, so I I have like the platinum membership, so I get a locker. So and I haven't been using it, so we just kind of use the locker as a hub to trade the pieces around. I gave everybody my locker combination, and uh, you know we all kind of picked everything up. And we wanted to have it done for Killicans, but we really didn't have enough time, so we pushed the date back for the APOC, which was perfect because he was able to fit the. We like gave the gave the night to him that day, and he was able to fit it into his list and play with it. All awesome. good. Awesome. Um, what was his reaction when he received it? Uh, he was, you know, he he really enjoyed it, and uh, I think he was a little blown away by it. You know, a little surprised, so it was good. Cool. So, what else have you been up to? Um, so, currently, I'm making hobby progress. I'm uh, uh, Lamana, and I split this tooth and claw box. He got the uh, gene sealers for his son, and I got the. Uh, Space Wolf half, so I'm building a bunch of Primaris stuff up for a Burks tournament on Saturday. So right now I'm clipping and taking mold lines away while we speak. <laughs> yeah, I've got uh, three aggressors and five uh, Marines to build. So how big of a list do you bring into that tournament? What's the uh, what's the format? It's a thousand point doubles. So I'll bring a thousand Space Wolves, and John's bringing a thousand Dark Angels, and we're gonna do our little. Um, Flying in the wolf stratagem we like to do. Um, Lavelle, how about you? What's been new? You know, I have to tell you, since we last recorded, my hobby progress, I am proud to say, has been zero. I Yeah, that sounds strange, doesn't it? What the heck? Who, who is this? <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I so have I know, been... Go ahead. Hold on. I know you were sick. Right. I was sick. You've been replaced. Dun, dun, dun. Body snatchers. Or gene sealers. No. I have been really focusing on doing a lot of reading. This year in 2019, I am focusing uh, on doing more narrative play. And so I have been building a lot of lists and working on trying to build more narrative scenarios. And so I've been diving deep into the lore and trying to work with a couple of people around building more narrative scenarios. I guess I, I got to go back on what I just said. <laughs> I, I think more of the things that I've been doing has been around terrain. Yes, and building more narrative um, world building around terrain and um, building more narrative scenarios. They've been doing a lot, um, especially with Vigilus. I don't know if anybody actually looked at Vigilus, but I've been looking at Vigilus and looking at what's coming out and what came out rather in Vigilus and trying to figure out ways to build more narrative games around my Necrons, which I really, really like, and looking for ways to do more of that. That's what my focus has been on since we've last recorded. How do you like the Vigilus book so far? 
Um, the Vigilist book has been really, really interesting. There's not a lot in it for me and the factions that I like to play, but I like what they've done around the world. Um, the if you, I don't know if you had a, a there was a, a Forge World campaign on Taros, and that reminded me on that. And there's a lot in Vigilist that really, really looks like the Forge World books that they they put out. Lavelle, I was I was going to just say the same exact thing. This is this is a throwback to those Imperial Armor campaign books yes. that Forge World was doing. It's it's ex- it's like exhaustively written, lots of detail, lots of minutiae to get lost in, which is really fun, and. You know, a whole an entire campaign system. All the while, it does update the 40k narrative nicely too, in terms of you know regular Space Marines becoming Primaris Marines and Marnius Calgar, etc. But go on, sorry. Yeah, it's really really good there, and I think it really speaks to some of the ways that they're going to be moving things forward with the um, the whole 40k narrative. And somebody said, well, um, I had been reading online, somebody was saying, well, now that all the codexes are out, what's next? I think this is what's next. I could see them doing more books like Vigilus. It is a lot to get through. I read the I read it cover to cover, and it, it's a there, there's it's it's dense. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there to get your mind around. And the campaign, if you, if you were to try to play through the entire campaign, that could keep you busy for a year unto itself to play all the missions and all the scenarios and whatnot. And it's it, it's it's a it's a task. It's a cool task, but it's a good uh, it's a, it's a solid effort to do all that. You know, one of the, <clears throat> one of the things that I think we need to do a show around and we need to have a conversation about. There's a lot of talk out there right now about competitive play. But I think there's a tremendous amount of value around narrative play. Um, and there's a lot of fun to be had around narrative play. And so we, we, I think it's worth having a conversation around that. Yeah, we should take a look. It's easy to forget about, you know, because everything, like you were saying, revolves around competitive. But uh, you're right. Like from the games that, you know, you talked about having with Mike mm-hmm. and um, – even from the few, like, I don't really play a lot of narrative games. I mean, I play a lot at Nova, but in my normal, you know, the rest of the year, I usually play match play games. And, you know, there's something missing that I, I think narrative fills out kind of nicely. Tim, you and I played that scenario where um, that we had that one objective in the scenario, one objective in the scenario in the center. Remember that yes, one? Yes, yes. <clears throat> Even though, uh, you know. I won that scenario, and it had an object that had more of a narrative feel. It did. It too. did. And and those scenarios where it's just a different type of, of feeling. You you're, you're not worrying about attrition. I, I like those games when you are focusing on a specific objective for whatever reason. I like those 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 games. So I was over at. Uh... Top Deck in South Jersey, which is a gaming store, you know, like 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. And I was chatting with the owner, and he was talking about they're just about to start in February, I believe, a slow-grow, power-level-based narrative campaign for new and experienced players. Do you think power-level, like, even in a narrative format, do you think it's, uh, well, balanced enough? I do because I think those narrative missions are set up to accommodate a slight discrepancy, you know, by the nature of having an attacker and a defender, and the defender having certain stratagems, or the attacker having certain things they can do that the defender can't, or by more kind of rigorously defining the the start conditions for the game and the victory conditions. I think there's some extra balancing built into that. I think. Um, 
I haven't played a ton of games based around power level, maybe three or four in the last you know couple of years. It's not not something that I or I, I don't know many people who play that way. Um, but I think if we are to maybe give our 40k play a narrative twist this year, it's definitely worth uh, doing doing more of. Yeah, maybe we should give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Give, it a, give it a try. Yeah, I like that. We'll segue into my hobby progress here. Last month, Lavelle and I started talking about playing through that Forgebane booklet, which was which were the missions that came with the Forgebane box set, which was Necrons and uh, Adeptus Mechanicus. Um, it was the it was the box that introduced those Armager Warglaives, which is why everybody was kind of excited about it when it first came out. Um, so I bought the booklet, which I'm looking for now. I have like four million books on my desk, but I can't seem to find that one. Here it is. So the missions are... The missions solely use the the models in that box. So it's just... it's a it's there's four three missions here. They're all limited to the armies that come in that box, which is... For the Adeptus Mechanicus, it's uh, ten Skatarii, two Warglaives, and a Tech Priest. And, Lavelle, do you remember what came on the Necron side of that box? I don't have it in front of me. Oh, I got them all so mixed up. I think I went through, I might have had three boxes. Right on, yeah. But it was, it, it might have been ten Warriors, um, six Wraiths, and a Cryptek. Gotcha, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. With the, with the cloak, right? Yes. That was when mm-hmm. the cloak came out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are power level based missions i assume because it's just you you know this this half of the box versus that half of the box which is actually the first time i'll be playing through like one of the box mission booklets because usually you know i you know i get a box or or, or a box set of things and you just play match to play games with whatever's in the box you don't bother with the booklet but i think you know as i think we just talked about it last last episode I was excited about this box because it has something to do with Blackstone, which has uh, kind of been on my mind recently. So I'd like to see what happens over the course of those missions. So in preparation for that, I built the Warglaves and painted them. I'm on the fa- I'll, put a, I'll put a picture up on Facebook when I... I brought them home today. They're, they're painted. Um, I'll put a picture up on the Facebook page. They're, I'm leaving them glossy, I think. I usually matte varnish everything when I'm done painting it. But in this case... I might leave it glossy. I'll put the photos up and we can see what everybody thinks of it. Um, I also built uh, 10 more Skatarii, um, which turned into 20 more, because while I was bidding on the Forgebane boxed set auction on eBay, I was also bidding somehow accidentally on another 10 Skatarii. I don't know what I was doing, but I wound up with... Oh, you knew what you were doing. I was, you were I, pulling I, a Lavelle. Yeah, yeah, I, I was, when I do that, when I do that... <laughs> It was just it was just one of those things. All of a sudden, like, oh, you won that auction. Oh, you won that auction, too. I was like, oh, I honestly wasn't planning on winning both, you know? <laughs> Tim's like, Chrissy, I promise it was an accident. I didn't mean to get two boxes. Like, <laughs> it was just something. It must have been a glitch in the, in the Matrix. I don't know what happened. Right. I know how that goes. But I, I, was, I was glad to get both boxes, so I, I, I painted uh, 20 more Skatarii, 10 Vanguard, and 10 Rangers, which, which I've never – I have never played – 40 infantry before in a list. So that's going to be my new thing. I'm just going to play a ton of little red cloaked uh, infantry men in my next game. I think it's going to be fun. That's a great idea. Especially for the Skatarii with those Assault 3 um, radium carbines. You know, you get 20 of those guys running at you. That's kind of cool with re-rolling ones and some of the uh, some of the stratagems that the Skatarii have in the shooting phase are pretty good. So I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to giving that a shot. That'd be great. I think that's a great idea because, you know, th- there's a bunch of horde armies out there right now. And uh, I think that would counter them 
very well. Yeah. I also built and primed the Blackstone Fortress models, and I built and primed the Rogue Trader Kill Team expansion box. I finally bought that. I really bought that for the mini codexes because I was just really curious. And The models are cool in the uh, Rogue Trader box set. The Gellerpox Infected are especially cool. They're two of the bigger dudes are actually really disturbing looking. There's all kinds of faces coming out of them and mouths where there shouldn't be, you know, really good nurgly stuff, but they're really super gross. They'll be fun to paint. It comes with with the new, you know, it's like a terrain piece, a cardboard board game uh, board to play on, and a bunch of terrain pieces like doors and uh, some escape pods, like these miniature drop pods, which are cool. I'm going to try to paint the Blackstone Fortress stuff up and the Rogue, the Kill Team stuff up pretty quickly. Don't want to spend a ton of time on it. Lavelle, we should talk about our game of Blackstone Fortress. I just I built them and primed them and did a little splash of white just to give them a little something. And then we, we dove into our first game last uh, Friday. Hey, Tim, before we go on, let me back up. <clears throat> I, I went online. The Forge Bane con- includes three Wraith, five Immortal, five Lich Guard, and the Cryptech. Okay, yeah. So in this campaign, it'll be three missions of Warglaives, Tech priest and rangers. I think I'll bring for the campaign. Oh, yeah. I don't really see how that's even, but let's see. Let's see where this goes. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious to see where it goes. And the it's you know the missions sound fun. The book is cool. It's got some nice fluff in the beginning, and it's it's good. Yeah, it's good. But we did have a chance to get some games in. Uh, Carlo and I also got some games in. Carlo, you and I played um, AOS Champions, the card game, which was a lot of fun. I've been I've been playing that a good bit on the app, on the cell phone app, and I've been trying to play in person with folks as often as I can. I really enjoyed that. I didn't think I was going to like it, but I really enjoyed it. Like when we got a mad um, Nova, my my fir- my initial thing was like, oh great, another TCG. Like I know like GW is jumping on the bandwagon, but it was actually like a really fun and well thought out game. Yeah, yeah, it really is. The when I went over to um, Top Deck, that gaming store I just mentioned, I asked if he was selling the booster packs or anything, and he said, you know, after the first week. When everybody was buying stuff, like sales have fallen off, so it's not even out on the shelf anymore over there. I don't think I didn't see it. He said he has some in the back if I wanted it, but it's, I don't think they're selling it. And I even noticed that on uh, what website was it? I think it's Cool Stuff Inc., which sells a lot of Magic singles and whatnot. They're having a blowout sale on the booster boxes, which is unfortunate. Uh, so that's not that's a good not sign. Good sign. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not a good sign. Uh, yeah. But they are releasing a new set. I thought I saw. Yes, yeah, there's still still stuff coming out, and there's a 2019 competitive campaign thing that they're going to launch. Okay, so they need something like that. I mean, like, you know, they, they need to, to advertise the game a little bit, because I really haven't seen much kind of in, in the ways of encouragement of play. By them, by them, you know. Yeah, I am. I am a fan. Um, any listeners who are on the app, my username is Timothy D4Y. If you want to uh, jump on the app and challenge me to a game, my order deck is currently level 17, and my I have a death deck too that's level two. So I haven't gotten a ton of games in, but uh, but it is super fun. The uh, the, the app is cool because you can scan the cards in, and you get to use the the physical cards that you buy in the game without having to buy anything additional for the game, which is nice. And after that, uh, Carlo, you and I got in a game of Kill Team. You were victorious. The uh, Space Wolves uh, defeated the forces of my little orc warband. And then the very next day, Lavelle, you and I get together, and we kicked off uh, Blackstone Fortress and also got a game of Ethereum in. Now, our listeners have heard us talk about Ethereum before. It's by Anvilate Games out of Chicago. We picked it up a, a while back at one of the conventions. 
played it a handful of times, but every time I play it, like the night before we get a game in, I read the rule book again. I'm like, man, this is a fun game. This is a neat system. This is cool. And every time we play it, we always come away from the game thinking like, this should, people should be playing this more often. This is a really good game. It's a fun <laughs> little, <laughs> it's a fun thing. You know, it's not too, it's not too heady, but it's still strategic enough to be interesting. There's just enough story. The artwork is decent in the book. You know, there's, we had, we had a good game of it. I thought it's a it nice was, like little cyberpunk kind of feel to it. Yeah. 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 You know what I like about the game? So you have the models. Um, you 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 know. And let me, let me tell you, Carla. You know how I beat Tim? He kept forgetting to manipulate the environment. Mm-hmm. And Tim, you, you know, always forget to manipulate. <laughs> yeah, and so and so I we you know we're both modeling. We're we're adjusting our models. We're going model model. But I was watching Tim, and at the last minute. I'm manipulating the environment to adjust his ability to do things with his model. It was really, really good. And I, I kept hearing quotes from uh, Morpheus in my head. It's that air you're breathing. <laughs> As I moved the whole environment away. <laughs> yeah, it was. it's a really good game. It's fun because you, what you were doing, Lavelle, was smart. You were pushing the terrain farther and farther away from each other, and I was on the piece of terrain you were pushing away, so I had to spend RAM just to get back into the game, and you have a limited number, amount of RAM each turn to use, and it's really important so I could do limited things with my time. Uh, you wound up winning by virtue of doing the most more damage to my uh, avatar, which is kind of your HQ choice in Ethereum. You did more damage to my avatar than I did to yours. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great it's game. It's a really good game. Yeah. It's real. It really was good. Yeah, I'd like to see more people playing it around here. And uh... Maybe we should organize some sort of Ethereum uh, night or something. I know that they do, like, kind of, they were traveling around and doing demos of it in certain stores. So maybe we could, like, get in touch with the company and see if they want to come down to Redcaps. And then right after Ethereum, it was a good morning. We got in two games. We played Ethereum, and then we uh, we opened up Blackstone Fortress. And by opened up, I mean we literally had to open up all the cards and all the bits and punch out all the cardboard and all the little tokens and whatnot. It was a. It took a little while to get everything out of the box and get everything on the table. Did you build all the models that night too? No, I built the models the week before. Um, uh, just, just while I was just, I, I took the stuff home and was just kind of sitting in my kitchen table, just fussing with them and glued them together. The models are really, really good. I do like the Blackstone Fortress models a lot. We got them on the table and we, uh, we dove into our first, our first combat and a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of those encounters. We, we got through a couple of encounter cards and I think it, I think it was great. Carlo, have you played Blackstone Fortress? I have not yet. It I is brutal. Is it? Oh my, it's brutal. It's like an RPG game, right? It was brutal while we were in combat, and then when we were out of combat, we were still taking damage. <laughs> I was like, stop drawing cards. Yeah, it is, it is cooperative, Carlos. So we picked two explorers each, and then that sort of, to the number of explorers you have, determines how many randomly generated enemies you're going to fight in any given situation. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and the way you know it's you leave it to GW it is laid out really well the rule book makes sense once you see like where the dice are supposed to be on the table and you like kind of get your mind around what each card is supposed to do at any given point and we got into a nice we got into a nice rhythm and I, I think what Lavelle is referring to is some of those encounter cards like our first encounter card was a uh, 
was was a, a a board, if you will, a level to play through, which uh, was a map of tiles. So you put the tiles together, you put your explorers at one end, and then the map tells you where to put um, the randomly generated uh, enemies, and then you figure out what the, which enemies you're going to face, and you put the enemy models on the board, and then you play through that scenario, and you you know kill all the enemies in that case. But then you know after after you're you're victorious. Hold on, hold, hold on, hold on Tim. Here's the thing: those enemies, it, the 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 game has a as an AI in terms of the way the enemies behave and it makes sense it's not mechanical it's like it 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 makes sense and so the enemies behave in a way that makes sense it's it it's it's really really good. Yeah, it's, it's almost, really good. You, so the way the enemies behave, you're rolling a d20 against a table and the table is based upon whether or not the enemies can see um, the explorers, whether or not the enemies are, are next to an explorer, there's all kinds of kind of uh, parameters in that table that you roll against. And like Lavelle said, it, it makes it, it's it's it is a good little roll dice rolling AI system, and it really it seemed to work nicely. Um, but then after we finished that first encounter card, which was this combat map, then we dealt two more encounter cards, which were just uh, you know you're all of a sudden you're ambushed by. Uh, you know, uh, whatever, and they're shooting at you, so you have to roll for the shots taken against you, and then, you know, we wound up taking a bunch of damage without even having models on the table. You know, it was just this, it was just a <laughs> dice rolling challenge, and we didn't do very well in that <laughs> dice rolling challenge. <laughs> so we did really well actually taking models off the table when we had a proper combat map in front of us, but then the two, the next two or three encounter cards were just, all right, you're taking shots, all right, you're taking shots, all right, you're taking shots. <laughs> But it was fun. It did get a lot of attention. We played at Red Caps uh, during the day. There was actually a good number of people there during the day, and it does get a lot of attention. It's a really good-looking game. The, uh, the the tiles look awesome. It's like super, like well designed. Of course, you know the, everything looks great. It was super fun, and I, I think we'll try to get another game in this week. I thought it was I thought it was great. Really, really good. It was. It was. It sounds like a, a great game. I would love to play something like that because normally you play 40k and you're against each other, but it'd be fun to play something cooperative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, and I, I did like I, I like the size of the forces you can take. Just having to control two explorers was fun because they both. I took the um, the priest and the flamethrower zealot guy. Um, had fun with those. Lavelle, you took the robot and um, the, uh, rogue, rogue the rogue trader. Yeah, which was awesome. Yeah. Okay, was, so that was gonna be my next question. Like how. Does it feel like you're playing like a fantasy RPG with classes or obviously it's got like a 40k spin on it. So what what were those classes like? I, I want to ask about that. I, I, no, I felt like I was playing in the 40k universe. I felt like my rogue trader was a rogue trader and my robot was, you know, the robot. I felt like I was playing like a, a, a Castellan robot. I heard there was like a secret envelope in there too, or something. Yes. Like that. So I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, and they were shocked that I hadn't opened the secret envelope yet. But I had not <laughs> opened. It. Why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, now, I don't like. I don't like what I just heard because I'm. Not, I'm not starting over. My robot already leveled up. <laughs> what are you talking about? My robot already achieved an objective. All right, fair enough. Don't, fair I don't want to hear. Fair enough. I don't want to hear that because Tad, the priest didn't level. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about that off the air. <laughs> okay. So calm down, calm down. That's right. That's right. <laughs> cool. Um, so that was hobby progress, I think, for us. We got some good games in. We played some things that are new to the the 40k world, which is fun. Um, I do. I do want to try the Rogue Trader rule set. It is just a minor tweak to Kill Team, which addresses super tight close quarters combat. I think it'll be fun to play that with a uh, somebody who's new to tabletop gaming or new to board gaming, even because. 
it is kind of easier to get your mind around because you're looking at one flat plane as opposed to dealing with terrain and line of sight and etc. It's a little more straightforward, maybe. So I, I would like to try that. Um, also, uh, arenas coming out soon. Yes, yes. I just saw that. Uh, just saw that yesterday, um, as, as well as, and I think it just came out this past Saturday. It looks like a new Cities of Death kind of a box set too. It's new City Fight rules. Interesting. Oh, so uh, speaking of which, so you know how I told you Monaco's for my for Christmas, my uh, fiance got me a 40k Christmas present, which is very very big of her considering how much 40k should I have consuming our house. But <laughs> um, so she got me a set of terrain for Kill Team. So it's a and it's a cityscape. It's like a Cities of Death kill team boards so when those rules come out i'd be happy to test them out cool with that we'll take a short break we'll come back with section two welcome scouts stay tuned Section two, welcome scouts. Today we're talking about transports. Hold it before we start. One of the things that we haven't done, it had a lot to do with the timing of our last release. We didn't go over chapter approved because one of the things that we didn't talk about is the deployment change and who goes first. I want to know what it, what is it? What so <clears throat> what happens is the way it goes is like this. We roll. And one of us decides the deployment map, and then the other one decides the deployment zone, and they deploy everything. And the other person... When you say decides, is it like you roll these six for the deployment map, or do they choose? People people debate that. It said The rule says they decide the deployment zone. So the the, 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 the terrain is laid. And then the other department, there are different scenarios that say different things, because some of the scenarios says you lay the uh, objectives before you set the scenario, the the terrain out. And some of the scenarios actually say that put the objectives out and then you set the scenario, the terrain, and then you set the deployment zones. Okay, some and some says you, you the other person can say, I'm choosing this deployment zone. And then the other, I'm choosing this deployment um, configuration. Then the other person chooses the deployment zone, and they decide to go first. And then they deploy all of their models. And then the other person, because you decided to go first, you deploy all of your models. But then I get to counter deploy, but I'm going second. The thing is, I'm putting my stuff in cover because I know I'm going second, but then I can still seize. These are big changes in deployment. Right. So, okay, we don't need to talk about that now, but these are stuff that we do need to discuss on this show. We just did. I'm leaving that section here in section two. Welcome, scouts. (laughs) (laughs) That was was Lavelle reminding us of some deployment changes that happened in Chapter Approved 2018. Thank you very much, Lavelle. (laughs) Which is actually relevant to our topic at hand, which is transports. What they are how to get the most out of them, what to watch out for when playing an army with transports, and if your opponent has one, if that transport is necessary for them winning the game, what to do. So in the old rules, one of the critical thing about transports was they used to reduce your drops. Because if you had a model 
if you if you had a unit and a transport, when by putting a model, a unit inside a transport, it reduced your drops. So instead of having two drops, a a unit in transport represented one drops. That's not as impactful anymore with the new unit um, with the new deployment rules. However, units inside transports still have an incredible tactical advantage. One of the most important advantages is they can't be shot at. Yeah, Lavelle, just for clarity's sake, when you say that there are new transport rule or new deployment rules that were a part of Chapter Proof 2018, are they actually rules or are they just built into each of those individual new Maelstrom of War uh, and um, uh, or Maelstrom and Eternal War missions? They're built into the missions, right? So it's not necessarily a change of the rules. It's a new mission. It's a new mission format or new mission style. The if mission you will. format. You need to read the deployment rules that are inside of the missions. There's nothing in Chapter Proof 2018 that would supersede the deployments that it, that is explained in the rule because it stands. I do not believe so. Right. Right. Okay. Good. Cool. Um, so let's uh, let's jump back into transports. I'm going to start by reading, uh, skimming over the eighth edition transport rules, and then um, each of us is going to kind of talk about uh, faction-specific transports, our experiences with them, or in some cases we have no experiences with them, and we're just going to kind of skim over what uh, what their rules are in the codex. So transports in the eighth edition rulebook. I'm looking at page 183. Some models are noted as being a transport on their data sheet. These, ferry, these vehicles ferry warriors to the front line, providing them with speed and protection. Following rules describe how units can embark and disembark from transports, and how they are used to move passengers across the battlefield. Note that a unit cannot both embark and disembark in the same turn, so you can't get back on or get back off in the same turn. First rule is called transport capacity. All transports have a transport capacity listed on their data sheet. This determines how many friendly models and of what type they can carry. A model's transport capacity can never be exceeded. When you set up a transport, units can start the battle embarked within it instead of being set up separately. Declare what units are embarked inside the transport when you set it up. Next rule is embark. If all models in a unit end their move within three inches of a friendly transport. They can embark within it. So this is the end of the move phase. They can jump back in. Remove the unit from the battlefield and place it to one side. It is now embarked inside the transport. Embarked units cannot normally do anything or be affected in any way whilst they are embarked. Unless specifically stated, abilities that affect other units within a certain range have no effect whilst that unit has the, has the ability is embarked. So a bubble effect on something, or an aura effect rather, uh, doesn't come outside of a transport to affect anything else around it. If a transport is destroyed, this is important, if a transport is destroyed, any units embarked within it immediately disembark. Before each before the transport model is removed, they have to just dis, they disembark before the model is removed. But you must then roll one dice for each model that you just set up on the battlefield. For each roll of a one, a model that disembarked is slain, which represents the chances of them safely escaping a burning vehicle uh, while it is exploding around them. So on a one, that model is done. So uh, let me stop you right here, just real quick. So for any new players, if you're going to do that, you don't have to roll a die specifically for each model. So if you have like a squad of troops and uh, an HQ in there, and you have like say five troops and one HQ, you just roll six die, you know, six dice, 
and then say like two of them die, you can choose to pull from the troops instead of like you don't have to roll specifically a dice for the HQ. Great point. Um, next rule is disembark. Any unit that begins its movement phase embarked within a transport can disembark before the transport moves. So this is at the beginning of a movement phase, potentially, before the transport moves. When a unit disembarks, set it up on the battlefield so that all of its models are within three inches of the transport, and not within one inch of any enemy models. Any disembarking model that cannot be set up this way is slain. Super important. We'll circle back to that. Units that disembark can then act normally. They can move, shoot, charge, fight, etc. during the remainder of their turn. Note, though, that even if you don't move disembarking units any further in your movement phase, they still count as having moved for any rules purposes, such as shooting heavy weapons. So rules-wise, the big thing there for me, and if a transport explodes around you, you ha- your models are forced to disembark, but they cannot get within one inch of an enemy model. This has happened to me, which is what, I, which is a story I think I've told before, where a smart player will bubble wrap a transport kind of as it's exploding, using maybe terrain on one side and uh, you know enemy models on the other two sides or three sides, what have you, and make it so that the models within that transport cannot get out, and therefore they are burning within as it's uh, going up in flames. So a really cool strategy and something to really watch out for. Be careful of where your transports are if they're low on wounds if it if it's easily if you're easily put into a situation where your models can't get out by virtue of terrain or enemy models you might be in a tight really tight spot if that transport explodes and your models have to get out i've lost some wolf in that way it's pretty uh once you once you see that happen once you never want to have it happen again it's it's, it's not it's not a cool not a cool thing to have happen not at all no no no, not at all not at all so so that's the so those are the basic transport rules embarking and disembarking you cannot do both in the same turn uh you disembark before the transport moves uh you can embark uh at the end of a move phase if you're within three inches of a of a friendly transport um, did I miss anything there with regards to just kind of walking through how transports work in general before we get into some specifics? So, like, a little trick I like to use um, with my Space Wolves, since, you know, they're a melee army, they want to get up close fast. Now, you can't, obviously, you can't, like, move your transport and then disembark per the rules, right? So, any melee unit that starts in a transport, if you want them to be on the board the first turn, they have to disembark first turn. So I'll start, like, you know, say I bring my wolf in, I'll start them in the flyer, and I'll put them on the the deployment zone line, right? And the first thing I do when I start my movement phase is disembark those wolf in within three inches of that transport forward, so they've got an extra three inches of movement now, and then they can move and advance and uh, possibly charge if, you know, the say my opponent went first. Pick it up while I'm putting them down. It's a little weak, but we'll allow it. <laughs> Carlo, I don't think I've ever seen you do that, but I do like the idea of that. It's basically a three, a free, three-inch move before your wolfen start moving. Turn one, exactly. And you can do it with some troops. You know, it's just like if you need, if your opponent goes first and they've kind of put themselves. A lot of people don't think that you would normally do that, so they put themselves in a position where they're. Um, it's like advantageous for you to get out and hit them. You know, you, it's, there's potential for a charge there on your first turn. Cool. Let's dive into some specifics. Um, Lavelle, why don't you kick us off with uh, talking about some some flyers that are transports. So let's talk about a real transport. Two, three (laughs) examples of a real transport. Okay? 
So in all examples of these transports that we've talked about, <clears throat> you're in the model. So one transport that I want to talk about is um, the Ghost Ark, the Necron Ghost Ark, which can hold 10 warriors. So what's interesting about the Ghost Ark is normally with the Ghost Ark, which is different about this and you need to be aware of it, is that the, the Ghost Ark can hold 10 Necron Peacekeepers on the inside <laughs> and normally the, the necron, chocolate coating on the outside <laughs> the necron peacekeepers get a reanimation protocol at the beginning of the turn i'm at the gw site now looking up necron peacekeeper <laughs> sometimes sometimes they're mis they're mis they're miscoded as warriors right and what can happen is at the end of their movement phase they get another reanimation protocol roll so they can get one at the beginning of their turn and again at the end of their movement turn. So if, if you have three and you get a reanimation protocol, you can get them back up to, let's say, five. Then they can move back into the, um, the ghost arc and get another one at the end of movement turn and get back up to seven. And then at the beginning of their next turn, get back up to ten and come back up. Isn't that wonderful? In addition to that, they can still benefit from the proximity of a cryptech. That's a lot of fun. That's a lot of peacekeeping right there. <laughs> in addition to that, the real, real value as a uh, as in all of these cases we've talked about, the model is still inside the inside of the transport, except in the case of the monolith and the night site. Through the wise, wise technology of the Necron Cryptech, they harness singularities. And the real, the real ability of the Necrons is they create a singularity between the tomb world and the battlefield, allowing the Necron warrior, immortal, destroyer, and various other metal peacekeepers to come into the battlefield and bring the good word of Imhotep to the rest of the galaxy. We don't need to worry about how that happens because most of you wouldn't understand it. But the monolith has this ability. And again, a true, the monolith, I still think it's overpriced and could use some quantum shielding. But it has 20 wounds and the ability to deep strike. And it allows this, it has this big model, has the 20 inch, I'm sorry, 20, it has the fly keyword. And remember how we talked about that margin that it has to keep for the, all around that entire base, it can bring anything in within that three-inch model, within that three-inch inches right there, allow it to disembark. Now, is that not a mighty, mighty transport right there? In addition to that, the Necron Night Scythe can do the same thing. Now, when you set a model up, when you set a monolith up, you don't have to designate which model is in where. Once you say, I'm, I have this Nice scythe. I have that you can set any number, any number of units up on the tomb world. It's true. If you lose all of those models, if you say you got two night sites and I'm setting up five units up, you would if you lose both of the my scythe, you use everything up back in the tomb world. It's automatically destroyed. But when you set anything up, you can bring as many models out of the tomb world as you can fit around those models. Why? Technology. True technology. Dig this it. message is brought to you by the might and the wisdom 
of the Necron Dynasty. Join us today. Tim, back to you. Mike dropped the propaganda for the Necron, Lavelle. Mike dropped the propaganda. <laughs> so um, what, what about the custodies? What, what do they have for transports? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's not important. Right now, the, the, custodies, the, <laughs> the custodies only have two things right now. Have, uh, the Venerable Land Raider is um, in the original, uh, before the, in the, in the um, uh, chapter approved, the Land Raider was good. They nerfed the, um, the um, um, invulnerable save on the Land Raider when they bought the Codex up. They need a lot of work with that. And they also have a, a, um, a Forge World Flyer that's really, really, really not powerful enough. Right now, their best bet for coming into battle is, is through Deep Strike. None of the Land Raider or the, the Flying Model has enough staying power to, to and it, they're very, very expensive. Right now, they're coming into battle with a Land Raider, and, and all of that is just a, a shooting, a, a, a moving target. It's very expensive. I wouldn't recommend it. Now, if they could come to battle in a, a Monolith, that would be really great. Although now, with the new Bolter rule... Mm-hmm. Wait, are... Uh... No, the new bolter rule. No, absolutely uh, not. The new bolter rule does not apply to them. That sucks. I was dead on that. <laughs> Lavelle, the monolith. What's the explode rule on the monolith, and what's the explode rule on the ghost arc? Um, the explode rule is uh, six inches d six mortal wounds. Six inches d six mortal wounds. Okay, great. Cool. Um, I will chime in with. I wanted to look at some tanks and trucks. So I'm going to start by talking about some Space Marine transport options. And if we're going in order in the Space Marine Codex, looks like the Land Raider is the first one. This can hold 10 infantry models, but a jump pack or a Terminator takes up the space of two models, and each Centurion is worth three models. In other words, and it can't take Primaris models. So I could take three Centurions, I could take five Terminators, or ten chapter infantry models. I love the Land Raider because it's toughness 8, 16 wounds, and a 2-up armor save, and a ton of gun options. Basically a, a transport gun platform kind of one-two punch there that I really, really like. And now, with the new Bolter rule... Move. Are you sure? I swear. It's uh, vehicles, Terminators, Centurions, and... Uh, what's the other one? Uh, ter- vehicles, Terminators, Centurions... But listen, the new Bolter rule only changes the condition under which rapid fire would apply. Right, so there's three available conditions. The first is you're within half range. The second is you haven't moved. And the third is if you're a Terminator, a Centurion, a vehicle, or... And I can't remember the last one. But So in the case of the Land Raider, that would only apply to the Storm Bolter and not the Twin Heavy Bolter, which is a Heavy 6 weapon. It's only going to apply to that Rapid Fire 2 Storm Bolter. Yeah, yeah just stuff that has Rapid Fire, but... What about Hurricane Bolters? Can it take Hurricane Bolters on the side? Crusader can take a Hurricane Bolter. Rapid Fire 6, you're getting off a lot of shots with that, which is nice, yeah. Two Hurricane Bolters, too, yeah. So Rapid Fire 12 is a lot easier to pull off. It's nice. So there are some Land Raider options there. There's a, the Rhino, the venerable Rhino, the old-school Rhino, which can take 10 infantry models. It can't take Jump Packs, Terminators, Primaris, or Centurion models. That's Toughness 7 with 10 wounds and a 3-up armor save. The Razorback which is just a fancier Rhino, same specs there. Uh, But this one can only transport six models, and it cannot take Jump Pack, Terminator, Primaris, or Centurion models, so that's six 
infantry, six space marine only. Uh, the drop pod. I love drop pods. It can take ten infantry models, but it cannot take jump pack, terminators, primaris, or centurion models. Drop pod has toughness six with eight wounds and a three-up armor save. And that storm bolter on there, rapid fire two, would benefit from the new bolter uh, rule, which is awesome. Oh yeah, so I'm only pl- I'm playing ten drop pods on my list from now on. Nice. <laughs> um, the land speeder. This is not a model that I own, but it's a model I do really like. This is an open-topped transport, which is a good rule to talk about. Um, so a land speeder storm is open-topped. Models embarked on this vehicle can shoot in their shooting phases. Sorry, <clears throat> my throat's dry. Models embarked on this vehicle can shoot in their shooting phase. They measure range and draw line of sight from any point on the vehicle. When they do so, any restrictions or mo- or modifiers that apply to this model also apply to its passengers. For example, the passengers cannot shoot if this model has fallen back in the same turn, cannot shoot except with pistols if a model is within one inch of an enemy unit, and so on. Note that the passengers cannot shoot if this model falls back, even though the land speeder storm itself can, because it has the fly key- uh, keyword. So that's an open-topped transport. We'll get more into tra- uh, open-topped transport when we look at the Orc Codex next. Uh, next one in the Space Marine Codex is the Repulsive Repulsor. I am not a fan of this model. I don't like how this model looks. I love what it does, but I just think it's a goofy-looking grav tank. I can't get my mind around it. I'd like to build a Repulsor out of a Land Raider and kind of merge those two kits together. That might be a 2019 project for me, is to put those two things together. Called so a land pulser, a land pulser. Yep, exactly. Or a raider, a raider, rep rep raider. That's a good one. I'm gonna call it a rep raider. That's great. Um, so this this is a transport. It can take ten Primaris infantry models, and each MK10 Gravis model takes up the space of two other models. And it cannot place, cannot transport jump pack models. So very similar to the Land Raider. Uh, it can take 10 Primaris infantry models this time, and it cannot uh, take jump pack models. And that is toughness 8, uh, 16 wounds, and a 3-up save on the Repulsor. So it's basically the Primaris Land Raider. Again, I'm not a crazy fan of that model, but I do like all of the guns that it has. And it has this really great rule, uh, Repulsor Field, uh, your opponents must subtract two from any char- charge rolls made for units that declare a charge against a Repulsor because of that grav backwash. You can't, it's hard to get close to something floating on a, on a, on a, on, with a grav engine in it. I like that rule a lot. And one of my personal favorites, the Storm Raven Gunship. Twelve chapter infantry models and one Dreadnought. Each jump back or Terminator takes the place of two other infantry models, and each Centurion takes the place of three other infantry models. It cannot transport Primaris models or the Redemptor Dreadnought. Love that spec of taking 12 infantry models and a Dreadnought. Or you can take a bunch of Centurions and a Dreadnought, or take a bunch of Terminators and a Dreadnought in the Storm Raven. I really do like the Storm Raven. I had a weird, I had a weird total side note here, but I'm going to run this by you and run this by our listeners. So I had this really weird moment. I was unpacking and repacking one of my bags to, I guess it was to go play, uh, to play Lavelle a couple weeks ago. I'd like to make a comment that might be unpopular here. Oh, yeah. So listen, Magnus, nothing <laughs> <laughs> wrong. No. So even though that is absolutely true, but listen, I believe the purpose of a transport is not firepower the purpose of a transport is to deliver critical troops 
on target and when you it, it, safely when you try to tack on too much firepower diminish that so here's a perfect example i have a super heavy model in my collection called the crassus you remember that model and the crassus holds 30 guardsmen and then the original model it could suck up damage and it could drive boom it could plow through anything and it could suck up damage and it had a couple of uh bolters and maybe flamers to kind of make sure it couldn't get surrounded and the new version they added points onto it and they added last cannons which didn't make sense to me because it wasn't supposed to be able to deliver firepower I could see flamers, heavy flamers, but not last cannons. And I feel like in this meta, that's what they wanted to do. But to me, it's different when you have a, a, a model or a unit that's supposed to deliver troops or deliver, you know, men, as opposed to, you know, dishing out firepower. What, what do you guys think about that? To clarify, what you're saying is... If you have a choice over taking, say, say we're talking about Space Marines, right? You can take a Land Raider and put 10 infantry in it. You're saying that tactically you might be better off taking the Rhino, putting 10 Marines in it, and spending those other points elsewhere because that's going to get you more bang for the buck. Is that correct? Like if you're designing a Rhino, you want to design a Rhino that maybe has an assault ramp and more speed. And, uh, 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 um, uh, let me say this: uh, uh, a rhino with an assault ramp, more speed, and extra smoke launchers. That makes more sense than and a vending machine. Th- so we need snacks on this trip. Yes, <laughs> that's what I'm saying, and we're just not seeing that in some of the design elements that we have here. So, like the uh, the the um the the drop pod, the drop pod was the perfect example of that. The drop pod was supposed to be able to deliver the um, deliver the Marines on target. And they kind of, you know, that was one of the things. A drop pod was not supposed to have to deviate. You should be able to deliver a drop pod regardless of terrain on target. And I think uh, you, you mentioned the Crassus, which was a Forge World model, Forge World model correct? Mm-hmm. That reminds me of that um, the Terax, I think it's the Terax pattern assault drill. That thing, it has very limited firepower, but it's just meant to get certain models to a certain place. That's the sole purpose that that model exists. It's basically like an underground drop pod kind of a deal. Right. I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, it doesn't make sense. I mean of the the just the narrative and the meta drop pods going out of favor is ridiculous it's just ridiculous drop pods should be cheap and they should be useful they are cheap and they are useful you just can't i think it has to do with that shift that we always talk about towards away from you know tactical space marines and towards primaris space marines it has to do with that is there going to be a primaris drop pod just uh, equivalent is a good question so, for example, when the drop pod comes, I'm just going to give some examples of how you can make drop pods useful. When a drop pod comes down, on the turn, our pods come down, the Marines come out, they should all have cover. Yeah. All the Marines, they could all have cover, or they could all be able to charge. 
They it, all all kinds of things should come out, the, giving them the advantage of being able to drop pod. You know, how, right? Yeah, like they should. I think drop pods should be able to land. It should be six inches away instead of nine inches from enemy models. Like more than it's six. A, yes. Like give them like yep. a just something to make them that like look uh, appealing, you know, attractive for somebody to take. I also think so. I like what you're kind of saying, Lavelle. I, I agree. You know, like. I think also for the reason that if you load a transport up with a bunch of weapons, it's now a big target. So you have to play that transport a little bit more reserved, in which case you might not fly that thing directly where it needs to go. You might hold it back a little bit. So I think like running like a, a torn down, you know, like a, like a completely naked rhino or like a naked, you know, like a razorback with like heavy bolters on it instead or something like that might be might work out to your advantage. You could say, uh, uh, um, instead of buying a drop pod, you buy the unit and you add the drop pod on for 25 points because you're only going to use it once. Some tweaks to make the drop pod more effective would be... Right. To, to make them use the, that tactic. Right. We, I, I think we need it, a self-destruct on drop pods. Mm, now you're talking. That would be nice too. <laughs> now you're talking. Right. There, there could be other ways... I think, though, um, the concept of a transport versus a fighting machine is different. It's, it's just very, very different. I've been watching a lot of um, Sisters of Battle, their battle reports, and those are not transports. Those are machines of destruction. <laughs> I've been watching them because they've been driving in there and they've been unleashing hell. And I'm like, well... That, if that is a transport, I will eat my hat. <laughs> they are burning the heretics there. Right. And like Carla said, those are the things, those, those become the targets. Those are the things that become a priority for your opponent to try to take off the table. Right. And so it's different if I'm taking them off the table so that they will lose the utility. But they're, they're taking them off the table so that they remove um, firepower. You talked about the Crassus, that Forge World uh, transport for Guard. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about, and I don't have the rules for it, unfortunately, in front of me, is the Mastodon. Ooh. That massive Forge World Space Marine tank. Uh, Lavelle, do you have the the uh, Imperial Armor Index for uh, Imperial Forces handy? Accessing. The Relic Mastodon Super Heavy Siege Transport. Yeah, that's it. What do you got? This model can transport 40 chapter infantry models. Each Terminator and Jump Pack model takes up two other models. Smoke Launcher, Void Shields. Hmm. Ooh. How much did you say it was? Uh, $480. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> Next week on Crew Shaken, Lavelle has bought a new transport. Can you guys hold on? (laughs) 40 power level, weapon skill of 5, strength 9, toughness 9, 30 wounds, 2 plus save, 10 inch move, 3 inch, uh, 3 plus ballistic skill, armor, uh, 8 attacks, 5 plus void shields, crushing tracks, um, minus 2 AP, D3 damage. Um, Okay, hold on. What are we working with here? Last cannon, heavy one, heavy flamer, heavy D6. This, okay, the user, okay. Sky Reaper battery, heavy eight, 48 inches, strength seven, five damage. Siege melter array, holy, heavy 4D3, strength. 
damage. Uh-huh. 40 match. East Centurion can transport two dreadnoughts. Ironclad dreadnoughts. Mm-hmm. Explodes six on the six D six two D six inches, two D six mortal runes. Mm-hmm. That must be a pain to put together. If it's anything like a fire raptor, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's you need to break out like a heat gun or something. A saw, the, a saw and heat some, gun. <laughs> a, a, a heat gun, a saw, and some yeah. patience. Uh, yeah, for sure. 734 points. Yeah. Does not okay. include war gear. All right. Yeah. Yeah, That's two of those, you got a 1,500-point arm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so to continue our discussion of tanks and trucks, let's open up the Orc Codex. We're going to talk about some trucks. The Orcs have a ton of transport options. They are fast, and they're fast because they have a lot of ways to get around and to get in front of you and to get out and to charge. Uh, so we're looking at the Orc Codex. We're looking at page 106, the Battle Wagon. Again, this is open-topped. Battle Wagon can hold 20 Flash Gits or Clan Infantry models. Each Mega Armor or Jump Pack model can take the space of two other models. Although, if this model is equipped with the Killer Cannon, it can only transport 12 models. And the Killer Cannon is that 24-inch Heavy D6 Strength 8 AP-2 2 damage cannon. So if you have that on there, you can only take 12. Other than that, you got 20. Next one, next page. The Gun Wagon. Battle Wagon was toughness 7 with 16 wounds. The Gun Wagon is toughness 8 with 16 wounds. The Gun Wagon can transport 12 Flash Gits or Clan Infantry models. Each Mega Ornmer or Jump Pack takes the space of 2, and it, you can take the Kill a Cannon on that without uh, losing any of that 12-person, that 12-orc transport, rather. Now, do, do all of those orc transports have ramshackle? Just a couple of them? These two do not have the ramshackle rule. Mm, interesting. Nor does the bone breaker on the next page, which is toughness 8, 16 wounds, a 4-up save. Bone breaker can take 12 clan infantry models. Again, each mega armor or jump pack takes the space of 2. And there's no penalty for taking the Killer Cannon. These, I think, is the, these, these next ones are really cool. These are the Morkonaut and Gorkonaut. These are still transports. But they can only hold six infantry models. Each Mega Armor or Jump Pack takes the space of two. But I do like the fact that it's like a big walking miniature fortress, that Morkonaut and Gorkonaut great models. And those also do not have the Ramshackle special rule. Um, those are toughness 8, 18 wounds on a 3-up save. And the Orc Truck, toughness 6, 10 wounds. This does have the Ramshackle special rule, which is roll a d6 each time this model suffers damage from an attack that has a damage characteristic of more than 1. On a 6, reduce that damage cost, reduce the damage caused by the attack to 1. So you can reduce damage to 1 on a 6. If with that uh, ramshackle special war, which the truck has. That's the orc truck. Uh, strength, 6, 10 wounds on a 4-up save. This can take 12 infantry models. And again, each ar- mega armor or jump pack counts as 2. It's really good for like if you're trying to get some troops across the board and your opponent's trying to shoot it down with a las cannon before it gets there. And then you just, boom, ramshackle. That's a good a good way to use command point rerolls if you're feeling lucky to go for that 6, yeah. 
Um, next one, next up is a Stampa on page 117. Uh, the Stampa is toughness 8, 40 wounds. Boom. 3 up save. 40 wounds. How nice. Uh, this can take 20 infantry. Again, each mega armor or jump pack takes 2. And that also does not, I repeat, does not have the ramshackle special rule. Carlo, what do you have for us with regards to transports? Hmm... Well, I was going to talk about the Storm Raven, but you talked about that already. So, <laughs> I mean, I have my, my Storm Wolf, which is like the best transport ever because it shoots a bunch of stuff and it can fly 16 models. So, um, so you could throw, you know, a bunch of Terminators, Wolfen in there, whatever you want. Um, I know there is a, so like, what is it? The, um, not quite a flyer, but the Eldar, they have a, the wave serpents, right? So, and uh, they're really good because they have a an ability to reduce damage, kind of like Ramshackle. I think it's called. Do you remember what it's called? I'm, I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up in the Eldar Codex right now. Hang on. I have it right here. Do you mind if I grab mine? Listen. Do you know how void shields work? The void shield generator. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this says void shield seven plus. How is that possible? Void Shield 7 Plus. What's the Void Shield special rule? It says, roll a dice. Like invulnerable save, Void Shield saves are unaffected by the AP of an attack. But unlike invulnerable saves, they may also be used to negate mortal wounds. In this case, however, roll one dice for each mortal wound that has been inflicted on the model. With the mortal wound being ignored, indicated in the damage box is passed. What the hell? How can you, you know... Can you hear me? Yeah. We, we can hear Sorry. you, but but stand by one second while you're looking that up. Lavelle just brought up an interesting thing about void shields. Re- read the rule one more time, Lavelle. Sorry. Okay, let me read the rule. A relic mastodon is protected by specialized void shield generators. Near impenetrable barriers of force projected out at a distance from its hole in layers, designed to deflect and absorb the impact of high-energy attacks and missiles against them. In game terms... Void shields are represented by a unique kind of savings throw shown in the damage box above, with the controlling player, when, which the controlling player can opt to use instead of their normal save or invulnerable save against any form of attacks except from re- weapons with the melee type. Like invulnerable saves, void shields are unaffected by the AP of an attack. But unlike invulnerable saves, they may, be al- they may also be used to negate nor- mortal wounds. In this case, however, roll one dice for each mortal wound that has been inflicted on the model, with the mortal wound being ignored if the save roll indicated in the damage box is passed. So what does and the damage says, box say? Yeah. Void shields. Uh, at 16 to 30, 5 plus. 8 to 15, 6 plus. 1 to 7, 7 plus. So what's a, how do you get a 7-up roll? I don't ever know. Listeners, do you know how you get a 7-up roll to get the Mastodon's Void Shields happening if you have that many wounds? If you do, leave us a comment on our Facebook at CrewShaken or on Instagram at CrewShaken. And I'm not saying this because I'm going to go out and buy the Mastodon. I'm just asking. <laughs> just asking. <laughs> for a friend. Asking for a friend. <laughs> so, Carlo, talk to us about the Eldar transports. Okay. So, uh, the Wave Serpent uh, has a movement of 16 inches to start out with. It has the fly keyword, so it can go all around terrain, ignore vertical distance and stuff like that. You know, um, It's a hover tank, so it's one of the models in the game where it has a clear base. You're always going to measure from the hull because of the hover tank rule. 
uh, which is a little bit different. So it's kind of nice. I know most flyers, it's kind of, for me, sometimes it'll throw off my, uh, if I'm not really thinking about it, it'll throw off my shooting phase because I'm thinking about measuring from the hole when I really should be measuring from the base. And then I go to shoot an opponent, I'm like, oh, crap. But with this model, you're always going to measure from the hole. Uh, and it, it, uh, the really nice thing about it is it has a serpent shield. So any damage suffered by the wave serpent from a ranged weapon is reduced by one to a minimum of one. In addition, once per battle, a wave serpent can discharge its serpent shield on its shooting phase by rolling a d6. On a two-up, the nearest visible enemy unit within 24 inches suffers d3 mortal wounds and then the wave serpent uh then gains no benefit from this ability for the remainder of the battle so once you discharge your serpent shield it doesn't reduce damage anymore but it is kind of like a nice like something to use towards the end of the game or maybe if you're in a pinch and you need to kill a character you know like if you can fly next to a character and then just like hit it with d3 mortal wounds real quick you know because it uh pretty reliable ability there so it starts off with um a twin shuriken cannon and a twin shuriken catapult and you can replace the shuriken cannon with a twin bright lance scatter laser star cannon or aildar missile launchers all, all twin um it can replace the shuriken catapult with the shuriken cannon and it can take items from the vehicle equipment list uh, it has a 3-up save, it's 13 wounds, T7, strength 6, and the BS at movement and attacks are modified with the damage profile. And that can take 12 infantry, each Wraith Guard or Wraith Blade model takes up 2, and it cannot take a jump pack models on the Wave Serpent. Exactly. And, and there is uh, another, there's another Eldar transport, correct? Falcon, page 104. So that could transport 6... Uh, Phoenix Lord, Craft World Infantry, Wraith Guard, Wraith Blade models, no jump packs again. Um, this one is also a hover tank. Doesn't have any of the fun abilities like a Wave Serpent does, so no no shield. Uh, comes with a pulse laser, pulse laser, shuriken cannon, and twin shuriken catapult. Um, can take uh, replace the shuriken cannon with a heavy weapon. So this is a lot less firepower for uh, six less. Um, half half the transport capacity, uh, 12 wounds, moves 16 inches, um, T7, 3-up save. I would probably take the Wave Serpent every time if I were playing Eldar. Uh, I can tell you the point difference in a second. I'm sure that uh, like most of the Warger that comes on the Falcon is probably gonna, either going to be zero or at least pretty cheap. Uh, the Wave Serpent comes with a bunch of twin you know, stuff, and you can so, um, it's, that with that said, uh, it's probably always going to be the better option, though, because you want to be able to, most of the time, you're probably going to want to throw some, like, Wraith Guard in there, uh, Wraith Blades, and get them up close. And then you can, uh, so the, the thing we didn't talk about with transports, um, and it's kind of like a pseudo-transport, it's not really a transport, are all the stratagems you can use to deep strike your, you know, your characters and stuff like that. So, uh, there are a bunch of, um, stratagems and usually almost every book has one um that you can set units aside before the game starts and then starting the second turn due to the uh, big faq rules start bringing them onto the board um some of them have restrictions uh some of them are basically deep strikes so you can bring them down nine inches more than nine inches away from an enemy unit some of them have more restrictions like my space wolf outflank you have to be 
again, more than nine inches away from an enemy unit, but also within six inches of a board edge, which is kind of, you know, thematic for them because they're, uh, you know, space wolves, right? So, um, so most of the time, I think with the Eldar one, you can either pay one or three command points, and that lets you either bring one or two units onto the board, depending on how many you pay. So uh, a lot of people will do for Eldar specifically is play uh, like a Guardian blob. So they'll take like 20 Guardians in a unit and drop them onto the board with that, uh, with that stratagem, where normally you can't throw 20 Guardians into a transport, right? So it's a good way to get around transport capacities um, and kind of save your transports for the heavier, more important things you want to protect that you want to get into like a charge range reliably um, and not be restricted by like a nine inch thing on turn two. Absolutely. Which, which also leads to a discussion of those other rules that can get models onto the board into places they could otherwise only get with a transport, which is something like, uh, like a, like a captain and terminator armor in a teleportarium. For instance, so that's a that's a, a rule that exists without having to use a command point that some models just come with uh, as one of their own special unique rules, which is another thing to keep in mind of building a new list. Is do you have characters or Terminator squads, for instance? Do you have ways to get uh, ways to make models more mobile without needing a transport? Cool. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back with tactical upload section three. Stick around. Welcome to Section 3, Tactical Upload. We have a special treat for you all, and this might turn into its own section. We'll see how this one goes. For now, we're going to call it Tactical Upload. But Lavelle, you had a great idea for a section, for this section being titled Big Game Hunter. Big Game Hunter. So a lot of... um a lot of times on, on, on our on our on our show, I, I talk about all the large games that I do, and I do them very frequently. And I've gotten a lot of questions about how do you do it, how long does it take, what's a good idea, how do we do it. So here's a couple of things that I want you to, to start thinking about. In this section, we're going to help you understand the things that you need to consider uh, when you do a big game. So for the purpose of this conversation, I'm going to call a big game anything at 3,000 points or higher. And um, as, as everybody has been listening to the podcast knows, I pay, play a lot of games. Right now, Tim and I, Tim, what are we working on? A 3,000 Necron versus AdMech? In addition to that, I have, and hold on to your seats, a 12,000-point game. Um, it's actually Custodes versus Chaos that I'm working on with Mike T. And um, it, I, I do large games quite often. Uh, I have the model count, and many of us here have the model counts. Um, a lot of people have multiple armies, and it can be an opportunity to get multiple armies that work together um, if you have imp multiple Imperial armies on the table. One of the things that I want to say is, what, what do you need to consider? So the first thing you need to think about is table size. So a lot of games can still be played, a lot of large games, can still be played on a traditional six by four, especially when you have a lot of large models. You know, I say large models. If you're bringing one or two, one or two um, 
nights. That can suck up a thousand points right there. So just kind of think about that. And there's a whole bunch of things around model count that you need to consider, table size. All of these things kind of come together. But here's the thing that I think that that makes people shy away from large games a lot. Time. So when you think, you know, it takes me this amount of time to play a 2,000-point game, 1,750-point game. If I go to 3,000 points, if I go to 5,000 points, it's going to take me so much longer. Other than that 24,000-point game, yes, I did say 24,000 points, that I played over two days. Most of the games that I play that are large games can be completed in three to four hours. A lot of people, how is that possible? When you get into a large game, there's not really as much diversity in units as you would think. And it's all about keeping the flow moving as you go through the game. Um, Actually, I find large games against a single opponent go a lot faster than large games against with multiple opponents per side. I would not play a large game with more than uh, two two opponents per side. Because you, it's it's the decision making that kind of makes things go slower and the discussions and, and things of that nature. If you look at a military comparison, and I've never been in the military, I'm just going to use this loosely based on what I've seen in TVs, movies, and read. So when you play a typical game of 40K, you're really playing as if you're maybe, I'm going to say, a captain or a major. When you get into the larger games, you're really playing like a general where you're moving a bunch of elements around and getting things to to coordinate. The key thing in a very successful large game, these are the key things that you need to think about. One, what models do I already have and how do they work together? Don't just go out and throw every model you have on the table because when you have a large army, it should work together. It should make sense and not just an opportunity to get the models that you never play with on the table. Still build your army accordingly. Here's the next point. And we say this a lot here on this show. Never is there a greater opportunity to forge the narrative. This is a great time to come up with a story about your army, why they're working together, as well as what you you and your opponent are fighting over. Forge the narrative. That makes the game make sense. It tells you how you should behave in the game. I'm going to run out and just smash their faces, or am I actually going to work to achieve some objectives? Look at the mission. The mission is very, very critical. Look at the missions that are in the regular rule books, all in the campaign books. Look at all the missions and make sure you take a mission that makes sense. Um, And make sure that you take a mission that's not so open-ended, that has clear objectives. And the last piece that I want to say in this section, which is very, very important, don't feel the need to play to the end. That sounds strange. But you reach a point where you play and you can see the objective is going to be held by the other guy. Don't, don't, unless you're just smashing each other in the face, which I'm not saying it's a bad idea you can absolutely do that but make sure that you're playing to achieve the objective based on you know the number one number two thing forge the narrative large games give you an opportunity that that big game is when you can get the models that you have all on the table when you can build the the macro army that your collection allows that that you were thinking about when you when you built the army i played a very large game 
And, you know, because I'm going to just point this out. People think about the horde-type armies, orcs, Tyranids. I played a very large game against a Tyranid player, um, and he didn't need a lot of time to move his swarms. And a lot of times he was just measuring it, pushing a whole plump of people up. Um, but it, it did take, but it did make sense, and we were able to forward play to a conclusion. I've never played a large game that did not play to a conclusion. Either the tactical conclusion of okay, the objective, I can't get the objective. It's no need to go on any further. Or at the end of the turn, we played through all the turns and and we roll and the game ends. They always come to a conclusion, and I recommend large game all of the time. You should try to get a large game in. If you have the opponents, if you have the space, if you have the models, I, I, I recommend at least a couple a year. How many points do you think you can put per side on a 6 by 4 table? What's a good safe ceiling before you get into adding square footage? Uh, yeah, that's a it's a great question. So it's going to depend, and it's going to depend on model count. Um, typically, in a typical army, you know, I'm assuming I'm going to ignore those armies that are real heavy, heavy orcs. I'm sorry, orcs. You see, you see my bias there. Heavy, heavy, heavy hordes. Um, generally, I would not go above on a six by four, thirty five hundred points. And it depends. It depends on the armies. Before I would do that, I have done some three thousand point games on a six by four, and it did not seem like a, a shooting alley. Um, and, and a lot of times, what will happen is those units that are reaching out and touching people on the other side of the table, your opponent's going to get rid of them fast. Right. It's right. still. It, it's still going to come down to a grind. It is absolutely. I would not pay the the mission. Um, the relic. <laughs> I wouldn't want to play that with a large army. What are some of the things you do to save time? Are there ways that you can agree to bend the rules about certain things? Are there things you do ahead of time to to make the process easier and faster, maybe? I think the first thing you need to agree on is, is and this is very important, army construction and almost all large games, we make some sweeping decisions like we're going to play 3,000 points, 4,000 points per side, no more than two lords of war. And so what that prevents is that prevents um, kind of a, a, a lopsided game. And that's not fun for anybody. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can agree on, um, I, you know, I generally, when I play a large game, I generally do an open list. Uh, um, I, don't, I don't get to the table to my phone and say, ha-ha, look what I brought. So I generally, that way um, they can say if anything is, 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 is lopsided. Um, a lot of times, some of the things that I hear people say is, well, I have no answer in my collection to that. And, you know, um, for example, if I was playing, uh, if I was going to play my four knights and they had no answer for knights at all, then I'm going to rework my list. Because, you know, if the, that, that one unit will run around the board doing a whole bunch of things. Some of the other things that we talk about beforehand is whether or not we're going to use flyers. Are you bringing flyers? And so we, we talk through the um, the actual army construction first. The other thing, and a couple of the larger campaigns that I've run, we've played scenarios that we designed, and then we went back and said, you know what, that did not feel balanced. That did not feel balanced. So a couple of things that we control. We can control um, the army composition. We can control the reserves. What are we going to do about reserves? How are we going to handle reserves? Because if you're playing a large game on a 6-5-4, chances are 
um, it's going to be difficult for the other person to get their reserves in if you 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 can totally neuter them. So we talk about reserves. Um, the other thing that we talk about very very often is we talk about um, psychic powers because the psychic phase can kind of drag things on. So you know, so I've never played. I mean, um, Tyranids is kind of psychic heavy, but I've never played a really psychic heavy army. But so composition, scenario, all of these things you work around. Other than that, there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of uh, bending of the rules that you need to do. We talk we talk a, a little bit about and, and as everybody does in any game terrain um, and how we're going to use terrain and we, we make sure things make sense. I want to say one other thing. So I would not recommend a large game as the type of thing that you just grab 4,000 point army and show up at a store and say, hey, who wants to play 4,000 points? It is something that requires organization. And so what we do is beforehand, just like we're doing right now, Tim, we agree conceptually. Then we just talk about army design. Then we pick a date, time and location to make sure both of us have enough time to play the game. Um, the next thing, and this is something people forget, we check We check with the store. Hey, we're going to play a large game. This is what's going on. Do you have the space? Do you have any other activities going on? I play a lot. I've played some large games in public, but I prefer to play, I'm sorry, in private. I prefer to play my large games in public because I think people want to see it. And people want to, you know, come by and look and see what's going on. It is kind of a special occasion, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, one thing. One thing to mention here. Not really a question for you, Lavelle, but maybe just something to expand upon. We've talked about it before. Where I get, you know, I get psychically and physically burnt out after, you know, say three or four hours of playing. Right. So I know when you and I play this big game, Admech versus Necrons, we'll we should we'll build in a lunch break. You know what I mean? We'll pick a spot in, in the middle of two turns where, okay, let's let's chill for a while. Let's get some food. Let's, you know, get off of our feet maybe. Let's take a seat, get the blood flowing again, and then uh, return to the game. Because one thing to keep in mind with these big games is, especially if it goes across two days, physically it's a big commitment. You know, it's, and it's a lot of work and a lot of mental work to, you know, keep the game moving and keep it going quick and keep your, you know, your skills sharp after focusing for this long on uh, on, a, on, on a game. Uh, so there are ways, you know, there are ways like taking lunch breaks, you know, uh, agreeing to points of rest uh, that can, you know, make the game more inter- more fun and certainly go faster because you're f- fresher maybe throughout the process. Have you found that kind of thing necessary in your bigger games? I do agree with exactly everything you said, but I want to point something out. Tim, a while ago, you and I paid a 1500 Necron versus um, AdMech game. You had AdMech and Iron Hands, wasn't it? Yep. Okay. That game took us about an hour and a half. Then you and I got back together and you, we played a um, 2,000 point game. And that game also took us about an hour and a half. Now, here is the difference. Because clearly we've got, you know, more points. But the difference is when we played that game, both of us knew our armies. So when you play uh, when you're playing a newer game, an army that when you play a newer army or army you don't you don't play a lot, that's when you should definitely keep the points low. The more you know your army, you know your admec, and so what'll happen is it doesn't really add that much time onto it. You can see what's going on. 
Um, I don't think our 3,000 game, our 3,000 point game is going to take us more than two hours. That's yeah, my might prediction. Be right. You might be right. You might right. Be right. Yeah. So what happens is when things get really, really, I'm going to use a technical word here, janky, <laughs> is when I'm coming to the table and I'm playing out of more than one codex. When I come to the table and I'm playing um, units that I want to get on the table that are not associated, that's when things get a little bit funny and they, they start adding up time. So I but, you know, playing this this hobby can be and this sounds strange, but it can be physically and mentally taxing and people should remember at all times. This is not a job. <laughs> right. And we're not punching the clock. Right. We should just relax. We should not. We should make sure that you're sharp. I also want to say in, in a game where this size, um, when you're when you're coordinating so many points and so many units. You should be very, very forgiving. As a general note, I'm a forgiving player. If you forget something, you know, I don't I don't mind, you know, I don't mind going back a phase. You know, it depends. But, you know, you have to understand a couple of people. At one point in game, I had hidden three Vindicare assassins in two different three, two different locations. And I hit them so well, I forgot about them. <laughs> right. And so then I just happened to be moving something else. I, said, I got an assassin up here. <laughs> now, clearly, I'm not going back two times to take their shots. Sure, but, sure. right, you know, you got to be careful of your, your model count. <laughs> like, Jenkins, what are you doing up there doing nothing? <laughs> but I, I would tell you, um, understanding the big games, I'm going to be talking um, as we kind of dig a little deeper into this particular segment. Each time we do the podcast moving forward, I'm going to be giving one or two important things to consider um, when you're planning a, a, a big game and things to, to, to work through. And just as a sneak preview, the first thing we're going to talk about in our next podcast in this section is terrain. Because, you know, you think you think to yourself, hey, what was to talk about terrain? But, you know, if you've got that many models on the board, terrain makes a big deal. And does the terrain add to the game, detract from the game, and what can you do to think about it? Cool. This was a great idea for a section, Lavelle. You have a lot of experience with these bigger games, and I think our listeners will uh, enjoy you sharing some of that experience. And I do look forward to our 3,000-point game, which I think will be the largest solo game that I have played. And as an aside, it's actually hard to put together... It's become hard for me to put together a 3,000-point all-admec list because with the points change recently, I need to get more models, so i got to work on that now, too, which is good. Cool. We'll take a short break. We'll be back with future history. Stay tuned. We're back. Section 4, Future History, a look at the narrative side of the 40K universe. Today we're talking about a character that Lavelle and I know very little about. Neither of us nor Carlo is a Chaos player, uh, is not a Demons player, is not a Thousand Suns player. So this, um, this is a character who's kind of in the, in the ether, in the, you know, in the... Uh, in the warp, so to speak, but not really in front of us often, just by virtue of the armies we play. And I don't think anyone locally plays this model. The model we're talking about, the character we're talking about, is Kairos Fate Weaver. Uh, 
This is the two-headed uh, chicken slash turkey of doom, <laughs> basically. Yeah. As we show our respect for the yeah, yes, you know, let, let, let's 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 call it what it is. You know, if, if my uh, if my Sidonian dragoons can be uh, chicken legs, then this guy can be chicken legs too. Uh, so I, I got turned on to this model. You know, I'd heard about this character in the lore, of course, for years. The model was reissued uh, two or three years ago in seventh edition. Uh, ben Kometz, a German painter, did an amazing job painting this model up and won the 2017 Crystal Brush competition at Adepticon. So if you can Google that, Ben Kometz, K-O-M-E-T-S, check out his uh, his uh, Kairos Fate Weaver. It really is an amazing paint job and brings a lot of the story to the to the model. This is a, a collection of notes I took, kind of culled from codexes and uh, websites, etc. Interesting story here on Kairos Fate Weaver. I'll get us started, Lavo. He is the vizier, which is an Ottoman word for high official. He is a vizier of Zinch, who was tossed into the well of eternity in the impossible fortress by Zinch himself. So in the impossible fortress, naturally, there is a well of eternity. The well is said to be the place where all things originate, space and time and matter and everything else. Like the center of the Big Bang that started the universe, it's probably pretty dangerous in there. So Zinch sent in Kairos instead of diving in himself, basically. Kairos survives, but is now hella old, like he lived a billion years while he was in there, and his head has been split in two. The right side of his head now sees the future, and the left side of his head now sees the past. So what's the downside? He can't see the present. But now Kairos can see things that even Zinch cannot see. To get all that down, there are 81 lords of change who write down everything that Kairos babbles out. I love that image. The 81 <laughs> lords of change just kind of walking around, squawking around, if you will, uh, just writing down everything that Kairos babbles out in case there is something relevant about the past or in case there is something relevant about the future that their master Zinch may need to know. Forty years before the Horus heresy broke out, Kairos appeared to Logar Aurelian, the primarch of the word berries, while Logar was exploring the Tire of Terror. Now, Kairos told Logar that Logar could avenge his legion against the Ultramarines for what Gulliman did to them at Monarchia as punishment for not upholding the imperial truth. But this victory for Logar would mean that chaos would not defeat the empire of man in the wars to come. But if Lorgar put aside his anger with Gilliman, the victor of the chaos gods over the, the emperor would be guaranteed. Let's fast forward then to the resurrection of Gilliman. Kairos immediately feels the psychic energy coursing through the warp that was caused by the consciousness of a Primarch sparking back to life. So as Gilliman's new Terran crusade made its way back to Terra and was engulfed by the maelstrom, Kairos set out to mess with Gilliman's head and amplify the guilt and grief he feels over not being able to save the Emperor way back 10,000 years prior during the heresy. Eldrad Ulthran steps in to help Roboot get his mind right and get the Terran Crusade back on track. So Eldred was kind of like a counselor. Eldred is, he's been in the story for so long, he's been kind of popping in here and there. It's really great. I, I, we'll talk about him more later on, but he's been, he's been down since day one, Eldred. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to our history. Unfortunately, 
the rare Corsair trader marines led by Kairos who are waiting for the fleet to emerge from the Maelstrom and all hell breaks loose. Fast forward to a key battle on the bridge of McCrag's honor, Gilliman, Celestine, Greyfax, and Sicarius versus Kairos, but it was no use. Kairos had foreseen all of this and had set up a ritual to bind Gilliman. With Gilliman trapped and dying, the Ultramarines were forced to lay down their arms and their fleet fell under Kairos' control. They were taken to the rear Corsair stronghold, which is a Blackstone fortress. Unfortunately for the Red Corsairs, Kairos, and Zinch itself, Korn also caught wind of Gilliman's presence in the warp and was having none of it. Led by Scarbrand and a red comet of death, it's literally like a comet of doom, right? The forces of Korn attacked the Blackstone Fortress to get Gilliman for themselves. A great example of that chaos god versus chaos god infighting that we do see, but we often forget about. These, the chaos gods don't necessarily have dinner together every Sunday. You know, these, these, are, these, are, these are angry, spiteful, vindictive gods. So in this case, Korn attacking Zinch to get uh, Gilliman for themselves. But the Harlequins also felt Gilliman come back online. So Salandri Veilwalker leads Cypher, the fallen angel of the Dark Angels, through the webway to rescue Gilliman in the Imperials. Kairos is still pretty pissed with this. So a lot of the last bit of that story comes from the uh, Gathering Storm books, which were the way to usher in the end of 7th edition, bringing back Gilliman, uh, introducing the Yanari, and uh, you know getting Greyfax in the mix, etc. Um, really cool story, really interesting that Kairos has played a significant role throughout the ages, dating back before the heresy um, until present day. Uh, especially cool that he was trying to get Gilliman for himself, bring him back to a Blackstone Fortress, which, as everyone knows, is something I'm narratively interested in, the notion of the Blackstone Fortress, and still, you know, is still a present on the table, still a presence on the table in 8th edition. Again, I don't think anybody here locally plays with him, but I know that uh, we've played versus Kairos down at Nova, I think, one or twice, right. or some other competition. <laughs> there, there, there's been a Kairos on the table, and it has not gone well, unless you have some serious uh, psychic buffs going on. But, uh, but an interesting model, a great character, and a big part of the forces of Zinch in the, uh, in the, in the 30K and 40K settings, especially relevant, I think, to the Thousand Sons, who are you know, all about the Zinch, the god of change. We'll come back with From the Stacks. Section 5, From the Stacks of the Black Library. New section here for Season 3 of Crew Shaken. Talking about, I I seem to have done a lot of book reviews in Season 2, or at least book overviews in Season 2. I'd like to make that a regular thing here in Season 3, since I do read a ton of these novels, for better or for worse. I do spend a lot of time with Black Library books. Uh, So this will be a way to, you know, talk about some of those books and uh, maybe turn some folks on to some of the lesser-known ones or encourage folks to revisit some of the very popular ones, which is what I'm doing right now and what we're going to talk about in Section 5 of Episode 21, is Horus Rising, the first book of the Horus Heresy series. So I am up to date in reading the Heresy novels, save for, I think, two of the short story collections. I have read 
all of the numbered novels up to the current release. So that's it's it's almost fifty novels. So once I got caught up, you know, it, it takes you know it took me like a couple of years to get to that point. So I figured, all right, let's rewind and let's revisit the beginning of the Horus Heresy and let's let's reread that first batch. You know, so my plan was to reread the first seven of the Horus Heresy novels. I got back up to I'm on the I'm on Fulgrim again, which is book five of the Heresy. But today we're going to talk about Horus Rising. It's interesting to return to a book and. It was interesting for me to be reminded of how many of these characters are still a part of the 30k and 40k lore. This was a long time ago in the 40k setting, but Abaddon is still a conversation piece. You know, he's still around. He's still doing stuff, you know. Seeing him in this novel, in Horus Rising, as a you know regular, quote-unquote, space marine member of the Mornival, the Mornival, I'll say Mornival, um, which is Horus's you know, inner circle of uh, counselors, uh, it's interesting. He's his character as a human, quote unquote. Uh, you know, he's boisterous and bold. He's tough. He's uh, extremely loyal. No surprise there. But it's interesting to see him in light of everything that's happened in the ten thousand years since. It's interesting to be reminded that at one point he was a, albeit you know, granted a very special space marine, but at one point he was a space marine. He was a adeptus astartes at heart. It was also nice to be reminded. Uh, of the role of the word-bearers in the heresy. So if you recall, the word-bearers were chastised for building what amounted to temples and churches to the emperor. That wasn't okay, because remember, the imperial truth in the 30k setting was that the emperor is not a god. And this was a really important part of the crusade uh, to reunite humanity after the you know the dark ages, the, uh, the long night, if you will. Um, to, was to remind the uh, you know the, the the scattered colonies of mankind that there are no gods. The word bearers, of course, they needed a god. That's in their nature. That's in Lorgar Aurelian's nature, and he found gods in all the wrong places. Unfortunately, <laughs> That's, that was his that was his rap. Right. I remember thinking when I first read this book a couple of years ago that there was I had this impression that the the authors in the first. I think it was probably the first six or seven. They spent a lot of time gushing over the appearance and the beauty of the space marines. And I remember I remember having trouble getting the size and scale of everything, meaning how big space marines versus primarchs versus humans were. But now that I'm reading it a second time, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like we're like we're we're stuck really admiring the beautiful face of Fulgrim every page. Which on first read I got that impression, but now I'm, I'm enjoying it a bit more. And on a second read, I am getting a better sense of the scale of things, especially in those first three books, where there is a lot of uh, space marines um, interacting with... Um, Regular humans? Yes, and what's the word? Uh, re- uh, remembrancers. Uh, space marines interacting with artists, with poets, with architects, etc. Because they were put on these crusade ships to record the deeds of the crusade for, uh, for human history. Uh, they had to give it a a creative slant because the space marines aren't you know aren't proud enough to tell their own stories, so they needed to put some humans on there uh, these remembrancers to uh, to get the story right and to record it in an artful fashion um, so now i've on, on second on second read i 'm getting a better sense of that and also it really all comes down to this this blade right this black obsidian colored blade the anatheme the anathema 
it's it it gives me chills to think, and especially as you read through the heresy, and it's, and even as there's a couple of short stories which really go way back in human history and talk about where this blade comes from and what this blade represents and what this, you know, it really gives it a, a ton of context, like tens of thousands of years of context, which are awesome. So I've been enjoying being reminded of how important and the big role that that sword, that blade, and subsequently those knives played in the, uh, in the 30K uh, timeline. Um, Laval, have you read this novel? Are you familiar with the story? I, I am not. I'm not familiar with this Black Blade at all. This is the first I'm hearing of it. Why was I not informed? This, it, it's a it's a big one. It's a, you don't want to you don't want to get scratched with this blade. You don't want to hold this blade. You don't want anything to do with this one. Um, it's bad news. I'll say that much. So I started reading the, the heresy novels because I'm a you know kind of a completionist. And if there's a series of books, if there's a series of timelines at work, I wanted to start at the very beginning. And when I first got into 40K, I figured, well, okay, 30K comes before 40K, so I should probably read all this first before I get caught up. You know, since then, I've skipped around quite a bit and read random 40K novels, of course. But uh, but it, it it is an interesting read to have everything that happened during the heresy put into context and to put, uh, you know, or everything that happens in 40K put into context by reading at least the first batch you know the first five or six heresy novels they are a very good read and you know even even so far you know in, into the you know some of the like the master of mankind that heresy novel which happens much later towards the attack on terra there's stuff that happens in that book that really you know resonates to the 41st millennium you know there are things that happen in these books that directly tie in to the current uh you know eighth edition story which i think is i think is great i think it's smart and uh you know, adds a lot of richness to the world for me. Here's the thing, um, and I didn't really understand it a while ago. I do understand it now. So a lot of the details are are just being written, which I didn't really understand as it related to it. Because I had read an article about them finishing out the Horus Heresy because a lot of the details and things, they, they gave us broad sweeping things all the way back when they, they – they revealed the universe to us so many years ago, and a lot of the details they're kind of fleshing out. And to me, it's 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 an incredible feat of storytelling that they're filling in these details of a broad story that they wrote years and years ago. Filling in details is a great way to look at it. It's almost as if, uh, you know, like you're looking through the lens of a camera, and we're, now we're getting into sharper and sharper focus as we're turning the focus ring. And I think the ultimate culmination of the Horus Heresy will be the attack on Terra, will be the Emperor fighting Horus on the bridge of the Vengeful Spirit and Sanguinius intervening, etc. Uh, will be, you know, Alpharius and Omegon uh, fighting Dorne. These are things that are bound to happen. These are not spoilers. These have been baked into the 40K lore, like you said. We in, don't know how they're going to end. They, they've been baked into the story in, in large brushstrokes, like you said, for a long time. Uh, but it is great to see more and more focus be paid to those little bits of story and to, to see more of that connective tissue and more of that, that depth of character exposed as these books and as the narrative gets fleshed out through the game. Yeah, it's really Real good cool. stuff. Yeah, really good, yeah. Cool, we'll take a short break, come back and wrap up the show.
Here we are, the end of episode 21, the first of season three of Crew Shaken. Do excuse the delay in its being released. It was on account of me getting bronchitis, and I couldn't speak for like a week. And then, of course, various uh, work and life commitments sprung up around the three of us, uh, which delayed us by a couple of weeks of getting this episode out. But we are, we're excited to put this one out into the world. Um, there's some new stuff in this episode. We have the From the Stacks section. Uh, we have a new approach to Welcome Scouts, etc. Um, would love your feedback back on it. Uh, we thank you, everyone who left us reviews and sent us some notes during Season 2. Uh, we did take all of your comments very seriously, and we hope that uh, we hope that here in Season 3 we can address some of that stuff. Right down to my pronunciations. Um, thank you for your notes regarding that stuff as well. I always appreciate feedback. Um, as we did in Season 2, we're going to uh, do a, a kind of a chosen a pick of the episode section here as we wrap up the show. For me, this is a weird one. Tamiya Model Cements, or Tamaya, I say Tamiya Model Cements. So these are, you know, it's a Japanese product. They've been around for a long time. I've been using them for years. But I never liked the bottles. There's a thick and a thin uh, Tamiya Model Cement. And these are model cements in the true sense, meaning they melt plastic together. So these do not create a breakable bond. This is the stuff that fuses those two plastic surfaces together, right? Been using them for years, but I've never liked the bottles. The problem is, it's a kind of a stout little uh, hexagonal shaped bottle with a short little brush in it, right? The issue I was having was that halfway through the bottle, the brush doesn't, it's not long enough to get to the remaining cement. So I would, I would use it to a point, I would kind of fish around to get the last half of the bottle out, and then I would eventually just pour that bottle into another half bottle, have a full bottle again. But I would never use one bottle all the way to the end of that bottle. And then I had a revelation. That the bottles are shaped that way, so that you can, when you get halfway through the bottle, you can lean the entire bottle on its side. It does not roll because it's a hexagon, and it becomes almost like an inkwell for the remainder of the glue. Oh. That's literally what I heard, Lavelle, when I did this for the first time. I was like, oh my god, I've been using this stuff for years. It never occurred to me that if I just boop, like pop the bottle on its side, all of a sudden there's the rest of the glue, easy to get to, and I'm done. Same thing with the, the thin, it's, which is a, a square-shaped bottle. Eventually, the brush isn't long enough to get to the bottom, so you just tilt the bottle over. It sits at the perfect level so it doesn't spill out. You know, once you've used enough of the glue, it doesn't spill out. You'll see the point. You, you know pretty clearly when it's ready to get tipped over because the brush is dry when you put it in the bottle. And then you can, boop, boop, you just dip the tip of the brush in there like an inkwell, and you can get the rest of the glue out. How cool is that? And why did nobody tell me this? Why is it not labeled in the bottle? Maybe it is. And I never read why, it. Now think about it. <laughs> why is it not labeled on the but bottle? Let's, let's put a sticker on there. You know what I mean? We're, we're, we're not all, you know, super technology brilliant people here. Like myself, uh, I, it took me years to figure this out, but I'm really glad that I did. So, you know, I've always liked the product. I've always liked how the glue uh, worked. I'm always, I've always liked how it flowed into different surfaces. It works really well. And I like it even more now that I know that to get the rest of it out of the container, you just tilt the darn thing on its side. How about that? I want my Congress involved. Right? I want better labeling on, on right, hobby Right, tools. we need a sticker. We need a, we need a, we need a warning sticker. <laughs> okay, my chosen thing is going to sound really really weird but here it is it's popcorn no not the kind you would get at the movie theater so you know we just talked in this podcast about large games and in large games you're going to be moving large amounts of models and tim i'm sure you noticed that my new transport mechanism is a little bit different this is what i've done 
You can get them at dollar stores. You can get them at um, Staples is my store because I run a small business. So I'm at Staples a lot and get a lot of coupons. But I get a small, regular plastic bin. I got bins of various sizes. I use them for everything. You know, that's just kind of house we have. We Tupperware our kids if we could. I've got bins all over the place. And what I've learned is when I'm transporting models before I was worrying about, you know, the various foams and making sure they fit and various things. For larger models, I simply put them in the plastic bin and fill it with popcorn. Put the lid on, boom, I'm done. Why is this important? What, what, what are you talking about, Lavelle? What does this mean? This means that one average size bin, now I'm going to say it works well for me because I drive, one average size bin or two average size bins, which I can carry, can accommodate multiple model types. I can put it all in there, and I've experimented with this popcorn. I like the popcorn that are larger, um, and they because it stops things from moving around and banging into each other. But and here's what I've learned: because they're larger pieces and there's more air between the pieces, it doesn't absorb impacts and shaking that you might normally do, which are going which could make fiddly bits of your models come off. So the popcorn I get might be six dollars for a container. And then this large size case that I get, this big oversized piece of Tupperware, I got on sale for $10. So that means for $16 about, I can carry flyers, nights, all kinds of things, and just swap them out if I can. So as you know, Tim, I'm a busy guy. I do a lot of things. If you and I say we're going to play this Thursday, probably sometime on the weekend, I'm going to build my army and pack it. And so I, I've, I've got my army cases for my, my, my little dudes and, you know, maybe for some other pieces. But for spindly things like my and my Necron army, my destroyers or my flyers or my here's one, my doomsday arc, which is really spindly. I can just set it, put a little layer of popcorn in there, set it down then cover it with popcorn. It works incredibly. It's incredibly cost effective. But here's the most important thing. It's very versatile. I do have multiple containers, but one container. I can take any army out and put another one in and, you know, the popcorn, you just reuse it. You just reuse it over and over and over again. Popcorn is a great way to transport your models. Now, it can be a little messy when you get there and you're unloading stuff, but it's not really that big of a deal. I want to say if you're moving large pieces and you're before you look for a custom deal, check out a regular plastic uh, bin and some popcorn. And see how versatile that is and see how it is for transporting. If you're using public transportation, no, it's not going to matter. It's not going to work. If you're also traveling, I'm going to say, let's say you're going to the Nova or some other convention. You're traveling a great distance and you're not traveling alone. Everybody can't necessarily have a bunch of bins in a car or whatever you're using to travel. So that might not impact. That might not work for you. But check out the popcorn and the, the cheap plastic bins as a way to transport large, multiple shape. I'm going to say large, multiple funny shaped um, models and being able to get them there safely. It has done a world of wonder for transporting my custodies. Awesome. I love the idea. If I do add another knight to my collection, I will definitely be using your technique to get that knight and his friend around to games. So for, for your perspective, if you're thinking about that, you want something deep, a plas and they do have one 
on something deep so that you can put one. And I know you got your war glaives. Mm-hmm. You can put one down in there and maybe the two side by side, fill it up with the popcorn, cover it up. Boom. All your nights are right there. Yeah, it's perfect. Thank you, Lavelle. That was a good one. Let's remind our listeners, we are on Instagram at Crew Shaken. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash Crew Shaken. Feel free to leave us a note, send us a picture, and follow along on our gaming journeys across multiple gaming systems, but mostly 40K. And that's it for episode 21. Thanks for listening. For Crew Shaken, I have been Tim. I'm Lavelle. And I'm Carlo. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next month.